Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, I'm really delighted to speak with Patricia Stokes, an adjunct professor at Barnard College who studies problem solving and creativity and innovation. Stokes is author of the book, Creativity from Constraints, The Psychology of Breakthrough, which was informed by her psychological research as well as her background in art and advertising. Thanks for chatting with me today so much, Patricia. My pleasure. I always like to talk to you, Scott. Yeah, I always like talking to you too. So, you know, there's just so many kind of starting points and I thought I would kind of back up before your illustrious psychology career and kind of talk about your experiences in art school. And then you were in advertising after that. Is that right? Yes. I yes. mean, you bring a very fresh perspective to the creativity field. And so I've always found that it was immediately obvious to me when I read your book that you're different. <laughs> you're different. You know, like you, you're actually you're, you're in it. You're in it. So. Yeah. No, so, okay, so a little bit of background, Scott. I, when I graduated from Michigan State, I was actually the first girl, and I will say girl, okay, who was hired as a writer at J. Walter Thompson and not as a secretary, okay? So they gave me to their best woman creative director to train. And I was in New York for two years. Always bothered me that I hadn't actually gone to art school. I always drew and painted, and I applied for the MFA program at Pratt in painting and graphics, and they took me, okay? And so Ann Foster said, well, listen, that's fine. You know, you can go part-time. You can leave four o'clock in the afternoon, you know. And so I went half a year part-time and then I went back and I said, Ann, I can't do this. I have to go full-time. She said, good, we give you a leave of absence. So I finished the degree at Pratt, which was extraordinary. Okay, so two years painting and doing prints at Pratt. And 
then I went, I was going to go back in New York, but I was getting married to my college boyfriend who was an officer in the Navy and he had a dream sheet. And on the dream sheet, you write, where would you like to go to get you to re-up for three years? He said, where do you want to live? I said, Japan. And we got Japan. And I went to my boss at J. Walter Thompson. And she said, whoa, wait a minute. Let me talk to the people in Tokyo. And so I was working at J. Walter Thompson in Tokyo for three years. Wow. Yeah, which was incredible. We traveled all over the Far East. We went to India. And then when I came back, yeah, I stayed in advertising. And I stayed in advertising until some, I th- I'm not sure if I talk about this in the book, Scott. But I actually think that experts don't burn out. I think they get bored. There comes a point where you've, there's nothing left to be learned. So I'm a creative director in food and cosmetics. And that's what I do. And that's all anybody wants me to do. And I can practically do it in my sleep. And so I was going to take a year. I took basically a year to decide if I wanted to go back in the business or paint full time because I was still painting. I had a studio or go back to school. And because now you're going to forgive me because you are a creativity researcher, but from somebody who was a professional, there was nothing in the literature that had anything to say to what I learned. Really? In what year are we talking here? Oh, we're talking like 1980. It was wow. nothing. I mean, basically, nobody was talking about problem solving in the same way that, you know, this is how it worked at Pratt. Okay. You acquired skills in everything. So their idea was you had to be able to do everything. So if you ever had an idea, you might be able to execute it, okay? But as soon as you got really good at doing something, they said, okay, stop. We're going to move and do something else now before you get stuck in that style, okay? So it's the beginning of understanding. And there was also a wonderful teacher, Calvin Albert. Um, we all had to draw three hours a week with him, okay? And he would, the first hour, okay, but actually it was two and a half. The first hour, he gave us a drawing problem, like, there are two models. Imagine that the light is falling on the right side, even though it isn't, and they're in deep shadow on the block, and draw that problem. Okay. And whatever his problem were, we drew, and then we had an hour to just draw on our own. And then we looked at all the drawings. And you know what, Scott? The drawings under his problem where he precluded our current successful solution were just better. Okay. So that was Pratt. In advertising, J. Walter Thompson and, and Ted Bates both had the same philosophy. You had to have a promise that your product could deliver, okay? That is not, Ronnie and I look at advertising on television now and say people are wasting their money. All the advertisements for product categories look the same, okay? Anyhow, that's a whole other conversation. So you have to have a, what's called a unique selling proposition. And until you had it, art directors and writers really were out to see. So for example, which one do I like the best? So this is a baby oil, a suntan product that Carter Wallace bought. And it was called Sienski. The two major brands were, um, there was Ben de Soleil, very sexy, and there was Copper Tone to give your kids. And so we had this product and we went on focus groups all over the country. Okay. Because I said, hey, look, I burn. I never sit out in the sun. I don't understand why anybody would do this. So we had teenagers and the focus group person was great. Okay. She said, the basic question was, why do you get a tan? Okay, well, you get a tan, Scott, so you have something to talk to somebody about. Okay, you're 11 years old or 12, and there's that cute boy sitting next to you or girl. What do you say to them? Gee, that's a great tan. What are you using? Okay, and then if you want to get intimate, you can put it on your back. The focus group lady, she said, so what is the secret to the perfect tan? And they all said, oh, you burn first. You put on baby oil and you burn. Okay, and then that gives you a base. I found out recently kids still believe that. I asked kids at Barnard about it. Okay. So I went back and asked, went to R&D with Kurt and said, could you put a drop of baby oil in that product? 
And they said, why, Pat? I said, I want to promise baby oil tan without baby oil burn. Okay. That's really clever. That's what I did, Scott. Okay. And so once you have that line, everything is directed. Everything has to come to that. It has to be illustrated. It has to be demonstrated. Once you give art directors and writers that, they just can go off. You know you have a good line, Scott, because people can run off with it. Wow, what a great perspective that comes from because the creativity literature kind of almost talks about it in the opposite way. They, they start with the generative stage and then they have the constraint stage. Whereas you're kind of saying like, you're kind of turning the whole field on its head in a way. Yes. Yeah. And in a sense, the most important thing is what you're working against. Yeah. So I'm working, always working against the competition. Whatever they're doing in advertising, I can't do. Yeah, you know, you're making me think of Colin Martindale's book, you know, where he analyzed artistic revolutions and and how it just there's an evolution of it constantly getting more novel. Right, but think about what happens with art. The new movement, and of course now there's so much stuff, but historically the new big movement is always a direct opposite of the one in front of it. So think about, can I talk about art for a minute? Yeah, let's go to art. Absolutely. Okay, okay. So I'm going to talk about something that people can imagine without seeing it, okay? So we have abstract expressionism, okay? And abstract expressionism is characterized by obviously being abstract and being immense and being virtuoso painting, okay? But a lot about angst. This is the story Roy Lichtenstein told. He said, I cornered him once in a museum. I didn't know him, but I knew who he was. And I said, Mr. Lichtenstein, how did it happen? And he said, well, you love this. It was adjunct professors. He said, a bunch of us were adjunct professors in the art school at Rutgers. He said, we were all second generation abstract expressionists and none of us were ever going to become famous. So we had to do something different. And we made a list of all the things that characterized abstract expression. And we made a list of the opposites. So instead of abstract, it's realistic. Instead of emotional, it's ironic. Instead of painterly, it's mechanical. Instead of improvisational, it is pre-planned. And then each of those artists took something else from what I call his toolbox. So Lichtenstein did cartoons, okay, and he borrowed all the imagery from cartoons and Bengay dots. Warhol was an advertising illustrator. What did he pull in? Advertising imagery, commercial imagery, okay? There was the one that there was, I can't think of his name, who did the, who was a billboard painter. So all of his pop art paintings are billboards, okay? But it's the exact opposite of what happened before. Of course, there's also... Minimalism comes out of pop and Richard Serra comes out of pop. So in my model, the plude column are the attributes of the thing you are working against and you put in substitutions. And if you want to do something with your own work, you list its attributes, Scott. And you only have to pick one to change. I preclude this and I put in a substitute. And sometimes that series, that first change, that first preclusion leads to what I call a cascade of constraints. And the preclude column in the model becomes a solution path. So yeah, it's totally different from what's in the literature. Wow, yeah, that is very different than like, you know, the four stage incubation model, you know, and, and then, then there's the eureka no, moments, no. and then, so you're about, you've By the been, way, there are, there, are, there are eureka moments. I mean, when that line, baby oil tan became baby oil burn just came. Okay, but it came after me thinking about it, sitting in my office for a week, and just typing sentences, typing lines, typing things. And, and then all of a sudden it just appeared. So there is a Eureka moment after you do all the work. Yeah. So, the, yeah, there, there's kind of a general outline of the process, but you're really getting into the process in a very granular way that is helpful to stimulating the insights. 
can we like back up way way back because sure. people don't know like what you're talking about preclude <laughs> promote. Yeah, okay. and let's go all the way back all the way back to like the creativity okay. problem what is the okay. creativity problem okay the creativity problem is always we have to do something new okay and in order to do something new you have to preclude your most successful solution or the domain successful solution and substitute make substitutions in it so imagine it's basically a problem solving model so i can't draw it so people will have to imagine oh maybe i'll put there a picture is, on the show notes you could do this okay so it's the little problem solving box in the top there's a thing that says initial state okay so for Let's make it abstract expressionism, okay? In the middle is a big part, it says search space. And this is traditional problem solving. In the search space, you construct a solution path that gets you to the bottom, which is the goal state, okay? And this is the thing that is new, okay? And so what you do is, in the preclude column, there's actually, you could have a retain column if you wanted to make it really complicated. So, but you put all the attributes of the thing that you were working against. And it could be, your, as I said, your own style of doing something. That's the preclude column. And then there's another column, which is the promote column, where the substitutions go. So instead of abstract, I have realistic. Instead of improvisational, I have preplanned. Instead of virtuoso, I have mechanical. Okay. That column becomes the solution path that gets you to the goal state. Oh, and by the way, if it's truly creative, you actually don't know what the goal state is going to be until you have the solution path. Oh, I love that. You know, Picasso yeah. said, I, I don't know where I'm going till I get there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So it's only when the solution path is, the solution path defines the goal state. Okay. I know you don't want to talk about math a lot, but that's how I did the math program. No, we're going to get to the math program after okay. we, okay. well, I'm okay. going to still, I'm going to keep walking through this. Okay. Model, okay. Because it's a very complex, there's lots of parts to this. Yes. Because you talk about four constraints. There are different constraints, you know, and in your book, you talk about four constraints and can we go through each of the four and can we talk about them? Right. Um, sure. One is source constraints. Okay, source constraints are going to be what you know. So they're, they're actually going to be what I call that initial state, what you work with and what you work against. It's what um, Larry Rivers called your first chorus. So if you're a jazz musician, you improvise on the first chorus. And this wonderful talk he gave at Barnard years ago, he said, I'm a realistic painter. My first chorus is the history of realistic painting. Okay. And the more I know, the more I have to work with and work against. So that becomes your toolbox, what you work with. Okay. What was another constraint now, now, that so I talked your about? Your expertise can preclude or promote, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You can know too much and get stuck in a rut, right? But yeah, you can yeah. get stuck in a rut. So yeah. that's why you have to, you know. Now, of course, you can make what I call your toolbox that has your expertise in it. You can make it bigger by borrowing from other domains. Okay. Or you can collaborate with someone else and use their expertise, okay? But you can only work within the contents of what you know. Good. So when people say, we're going to go outside the box, that makes no sense to me. Because I think of the box as the black box. It's your head. It's, it's what you know and what you can do with what you know. Well, that's the second constraint. Cognitive constraints are very much yeah. related to that, right? Yeah. It's what yeah. you know and then yeah, like your capacity and to... No. Yeah. So what you know, and the greater your expertise, so experts, this is, this is Erickson's work. So experts have larger associative networks, so they can bring in huge chunks of information. I mean, in this little article, I just read that paper that you sent to me, okay, where you talk about 
how long it took you to listen, not understand Schoenberg. I spent an entire summer listening to Schoenberg, okay? And I went to a couple of composers on campus and said, I don't get it, okay? And they said, oh, Pat, you know, you just have to listen and listen. I will never be an expert in Schoenberg, okay? I'm actually, I'm actually convinced that Schoenberg is musician's music in a way that abstract expressionism is painter's painting. It makes a lot of sense, actually. Because that that I, I understand. That you understand. Yeah. Okay. yeah I can't yeah. understand his music, though. No. Yeah. Well, you know why you can't understand it? Because the row changes. That When the row shifts, when you walk along the row, there's actually nothing, no way to remember what happened before. Yeah. So in classical music, you know it's going to come back. It's going to resolve. Yeah. Your template is expecting that. Yes. Yeah. You're expecting it, yeah. you know? So the that cognitive constraint is the more you know, you know, and the more you have available, the more things you have to work with. You can just pull it in. Third was a variability constraint. Okay. Yeah. And the variability constraint is from actually my early work on problem solving. And what we actually were able to show is that early in learning, so, and it's for any task, so we did it with computer games. So early in acquiring a skill, you learn how to do something and you learn how differently to do it. Okay. So... If the learning is too easy and you can get one solution, you learn not to be variable in that in doing that particular thing. There's some magic degree of difficulty where you have to try lots of things to be successful, but you are successful often enough. If it's too difficult, you also are not variable. Okay. So it's really important early in acquiring a skill that you acquire what I call a high variability level because you're comfortable with it. And you are, just as in Csikszentmihalyi's model where he talks about this middle space for flow, I think there's a middle space for the habitual variability level. So that if the task is too boring, you're going to be uncomfortable because you want to get more variable. And if it's too demanding, you're going to want it to get a little less variable to get back to what, what is comfortable for you, what is habitual. And the last one, of course, is the talent constraint, which is based on neuroplasticity. You know, and what your brain when you're young adapts to the environment was quickest. In terms of how parents or teachers should praise their children, you know, Cal Dweck always talking about praise the effort, not the talent. I uh, agree with Carol 100%. Yeah. But yeah. then it sounds like you're saying even a little bit different. You're also saying almost praise the variability. Like, you know? Well, yeah, 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 yeah. You did it lots of different ways. That was really good. What did you say? You did it lots of different ways, Scott. That was oh, really oh, good. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like Kyle's idea is really great. And then yours is great, too, because it's not exactly the same thing as, you know, we no. can praise lots of aspects of right. a process. And you're saying, you know, there's an element here as well. Let's reward the courage to create in a way, the courage to be novel. It's great, you know, this idea of early childhood sort of reward structures really do impact what we yeah. do later on in life. And in fact, you know, so there is a development, even though you talk about the ports of talent, you also talk about how this stuff, variability is variable. You know, our capacity yes. to yes. be variable is variable yeah. in itself yeah. throughout our lives. And by the way, the thing with the habitual variability level is why all of the short-term programs to increase your variability or increase your creativity don't really work because if people don't have high variability levels in that area, they're not going to continue trying to be variable in it. Yeah. They're going to be uncomfortable. Well, Scott, when I was in advertising, there were lots of companies that liked to do things like Synectics. It made them feel good, right? So we would go off to Synectics and 
there and say, so now if Wonder Bread was a flower, what flower would it be? And if it was this and that, and I was the group head on Wonder Bread at the time. And my boss said to me, Pat, you better have an idea before you go because it ain't going to come out in the meeting. And I said, it's fine, Bill. I have three ideas. They will emerge from the meeting and all the clients will think that they contributed to them and will be home fuel. That was I hate to be so cynical about it, but I am. No, that's fair enough. And you really have that firsthand experience, so I can't. Yeah. By the way, this is why you gave me a little hard time in that little article about why I don't quote the creativity literature. Yeah. You know what? I have the same problem with the math people. My math program didn't come from math literature, and my creativity model didn't come from the creativity literature. I know that. I do know that. It doesn't have to come from the creativity literature to cite other people, though. In the that's true. Literature. That's true. You're right. That's, that, <laughs> I can take that slap on my wrist, yes. yes. Because but, I've read all the other stuff, yeah. Yeah, I know, yeah. And I know you have, because I've read your journal articles where you do. So Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, now we talk about these constraints. Maybe we can, and we will, I promise we'll get to math, but before okay. we get to math, okay. let's touch on some of like the other ideas, like literature, art, fashion. How about fashion? Let's talk about fashion. Why are fashion is interesting. I actually am, Scott, I'm writing a new book now on using constraints to solve the innovation problem. And one of, I have a, a co-author, a business person. So we're talking about how do you get to the innovation? And one of the categories that Michael is interested in is starting with going to the, the same goal from a new path. And I was thinking about fashion with that. Because in fashion, I'm going to assume that you're a design house. You're either Chanel, you're Ralph Lauren, okay? And so you have to be fashionable. The goal is always to be fashionable. So you always have to be new. But if you're a brand, you have to be recognizably new, okay? So you have to maintain things. You have to retain things and then do something that makes that year's look somewhat different, but still recognizable. You're not going to spend, you know, $5,000 for a Chanel jacket if people don't know it's a Chanel jacket. Okay. So what goes on there? So what Carl Langerfield will retain? Okay. Fortunately for him, Chanel had some very recognizable elements. Okay. There was always the, the black dress. The little black dress is always there. Okay. And there's, there are these very comfortable fabrics. And there are those little boxy jackets with a kind of fringe on the end. There are big oversized jewels. There are white collars. Okay. And Langerfield can, as long as those exist, it's recognizably Chanel. Okay. Ralph Lauren is interesting because he does something that a friend of mine who's a fashion designer calls appropriations. Ralph picks every year a look. So it's the Zarina look, it's the Safari look, whatever the look is. Okay. And his people actually go out and buy clothing with that look, you know, that they take apart and do the, so that it's actually authentic. So if you change that every year, what maintains Loren? Well, there's the horsey look. So there are always jotbers and riding clothes, and there are always the nautical look. There are always, you know, people on boats. So there's something that is recognizable, but also new. How do you explain Lady Gaga's fashion sense? I can't. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> There's no creativity model that explains that. No, well, except that she's, you know, that her goal is to always be variable. That's right. That's right. You know, her goal is to constantly change, to constantly be surprising. So whatever she did before, it's easy. You simply do something different. Yeah. Wow. You just came up with the Lady Gaga formula. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I'm really glad we covered fashion because I found that fascinating in your book. And I just don't know much about that. You talk about architecture, talk about music. We talked a little bit about music already. Literature. Okay. Proust, maybe. Oh, maybe literature, talk about Proust. Yes, yeah. yes. By the way, I teach, 
I teach a so I actually teach a creativity senior seminar in the spring, and one of the things I give them, they have to write a memoir first. Okay, the sixteen of them, and then we read A.S. Byatt and Otello Calvino and Milan Kundera and Annie Dillard on writing, so that they know what their constraints are, and then we read one of their books, each of them one short book, and then they have to rewrite the memoir in the style of that author. Okay, and so let's take Calvino. Okay, so Italo Calvino, unfortunately, is dead, which is so sad because there's nothing new to read. But what Calvino did, he said, he said, what I want to do is take an event and look at that is a crystal and the crystal shatters and all the things that occur around the event. So Invisible Cities happens to be my favorite book of all time. I read Invisible Cities every year. Okay, and Invisible Cities, the event is. Marco Polo being in China with Kublai Khan and going out to visit the provinces, and he divides the book into cities. So there are cities of desire and cities of water and cities of trade and cities of this. They're very short. The descriptions of the cities, and as you're going through the book, you realize that what he is noticing in each of the cities are aspects of Venice, which is the city that he knows. That's the constraint. Everything is Venice. Okay, and in between there are these interludes where you have a conversation between Marco Polo and the Khan. And the Khan at one point says, "It seems there is one city that you are never telling me about." And it's about that point that you start realizing that everything is Venice. And so in that book, that the one that you love, there's a little network that I draw with Venice in the middle, and all the others. And Venice is Byzantine, and there are mosaics, and there's trading, and there's water, and there are canals and bridges. And all the cities in the book attached to something, and and so he has a structure for his novels that is totally different from any structure that existed before. Kind of like your theory of creativity. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Okay, so you know, in your model, let's jump right into math. Why not? How do you break the structure of a problem down into its three parts, and can you apply that to math? Yes, of course, and I did. I know、um, you did. I know you did. Yes, and well, and it's because of Bob Siegler that I did. Okay, because I got a call from the Department of Education saying we'd like you about seven years ago to write a grant for an early math program, and I said, "Wrong person. I don't do math, and I don't do early." And they, I said, "Why are you calling me?" And they said, "Siegler says you know how to break a problem down into the structure of its solution." I said, "Give it a shot." Okay, and so I did what I always do. I got a hold of a whole bunch of math materials, so everyday math and Singapore math and you know Turk and whatever they were doing, and all of the math programs, no matter what they tell you, their twist is they're all the same, okay, and they all have the same problem, which is that when they start, they're not about math; they're about words and pictures and stories. And so basically, I made a list. So here's my initial state is current math programs, and in my preclude column, I have wordy, okay. So there are videos and there are stories. And I put only numbers, symbols, and patterns because mathematicians think in numbers, symbols, and patterns. And so the second thing is, and this is where Tokyo comes in. Okay, I lived there for three years. I learned to speak Japanese. I can't anymore. I could only order in a restaurant. Okay, but I never forgot the Japanese count. It's the Asian count, and you count to ten, and then you count ten one, ten two, ten three. Twenty is two ten. Thirty is three ten. Everything chops. It's like that. That expertise thing, okay. And so I said, no American count, Japanese count, Asian count. And then I thought about the fact that all of the Japanese use an abacus, and the abacus only stands for numbers, 
American kids are using all kinds of things. They're using cube trains and they're using blocks and they're using. So this comes from Pratt. I designed a manipulative, a single manipulative that would be the only thing they would use. Okay. And so we have only numbers, symbols, and patterns, the Asian count, and a single manipulative. And then the other pro- problem with the current programs is they do what they kind of do a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this. And I said, no, we're going to do what Erickson calls deliberate practice. Okay. So you keep expanding on what you know and making it more complicated. Okay. And you do it consistently. And the program is as of this September in all of the, all of the kindergartens in the district where it started. So now instead of being in three kindergartens, it's in 10 kindergartens. And I can give you some data from it. So last year, the third graders on the park, the dreaded park math test, 87% were proficient and above. Wow. And the fourth grader using this model, because then it goes through. So the initial model is used for kindergarten and first grade. In second grade, I've designed a new what I call multiple operation chart. So they learn multiplication, division, and fractions simultaneously. And so in fourth grade, I had to have, I actually had to get a mathematician to help me because I'm not a mathematician. And because they knew all of the fourth and fifth grade math. And I got Andrew to help me and we were doing prime factorization in fourth grade. Do you enjoy These math? Kids, huh? Do you enjoy math? Me? Yeah. Um, I'm not a mathematician, no. you know. But what's happened is this program didn't come out of math. It came out of living in Tokyo. It came out of Pratt. It came out of problem solving. I mean, I was able to break this problem. What is wrong with math programs? And that was my preclude column. And I just put in the opposites. But the opposites came from my expertise, Scott, which is so really weird. A couple of mathematicians have said to me, you could never have developed this model if you were in math ed. (laughs) Well, there's another moral of the story then as well, and that's the importance of being an outsider in your life. You've you've kind of shown that in your own life. Yes, yes. Always an outsider. Scott, when I got to Pratt, I had six undergraduate art credits and everyone else had 50. (laughs) That's so funny. Do you still paint? Yeah. Yeah. I still paint. I could move the camera and show you a painting. Sure. Yeah, I'll try to screen capture for the show notes. Can you see that? Wow. Yes. Can you You see that? You did that? Yeah. Yeah. This is, and this, this was an attempt not to paint like this. Can you see the apples? Who did that? So the apples look like a photograph. That's what I do when I just paint. That's my dominant solution. So this painting was outlining everything in black, and the side panels repeat what's in the middle at a different scale. And I painted each panel separately to see if they would the colors would come out differently, but they didn't because I have perfect color memory. So people say perfect pitch, and I say no, perfect color. <laughs> I mean, in fact, this is really interesting. There was a show at Pace Gallery years ago. It was a show of Rothko's paintings and Bernard. The thing was that Rothko had seen a show of Bernard's paintings. So this is late Impressionism, okay, in France. And the story is that he told it on himself. He went back to his studio and put on his palette all of Bernard's color combinations, okay? So he was painting with Bernard's palette because he had perfect color memory. Wow. And Pace had the paintings next to each other, the Bernard and the Rothko. And my God, the colors were exactly the same. That's so funny because Rothko really prides himself in kind of being completely his own style. Yeah. 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 
but you borrow color. You borrow from the domain. You, you work borrow. with this. Yeah, you always borrow. Well, I'm afraid our time has, has come okay. closed here. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about in uh, sort of things you're working on, things you're excited about right now? Well, I'm excited about the math program. I'm excited about, I'm writing this new book called Creativity from Actually Sol- Using Constraints to Solve the Innovation Problem. And there was another book that was published last year called Using Creativity from Constraints in the Performing Arts. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. That's a good one. Yeah. So life is good, Scott. I'm glad to hear it. And do you consult for companies? Like if there's some, you don't see, it's because your model could, you could go in and you could like change the whole. Somebody from Gentner came to see me, the consulting firm about two years ago and said, could I interview you? I said, sure. What do you want to talk about? And we talked and he said to me, Dr. Stokes, would you be interested in becoming a consultant? I said, no. Well, hopefully you don't have time, right? I don't have but, time. Yeah, but hopefully, you know, listeners who want to apply your work, you've given them enough information to do so and yeah, uh, stimulate yeah. their creative process through constraints. Yes. So yeah, thank yeah. you for chatting with me today. It was, it was a real delight. I hope you wind up at Columbia. <laughs> Stop, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, Scott. Shush, shush. No. Okay. Uh, have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety? struggling to find restful sleep or plagued by a restless inability to focus it's time to break free from the chains of mental health challenges and discover a path to healthy living welcome to amen university founded by renowned psychiatrist and brain health expert dr daniel amen 
Dr. Amen, alongside a team of esteemed doctors and experts in their fields, understands the struggles you're facing and are here to offer solutions. From debilitating anxiety to sleepless nights filled with worry, our courses are meticulously crafted to target these specific challenges head on. Join us on a journey of transformation led by Dr. Amen and a roster of top-tier professionals. Say goodbye to the constant battle with your mind and embrace a future filled with hope and possibility. Visit our website today to explore our courses and start your journey towards a brighter tomorrow. Use code BRAIN10 and get 10% off. That's code BRAIN10 and get 10% off your first purchase. Amen University, because your mental health matters.